0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. A black beetle sat on the edge of the canoe. This is how Cecil B. DeMille, the great Hollywood producer, remembered a moment, I think, probably from his childhood. He was lying in the bottom of the canoe... On a sunny summer day, looking up and there on the gunwale was a, a black a beetle. And as he dozed uh, off and came back and just relaxed, drifting uh, on a pond in the state of Maine, he watched this beetle begin to dry in the hot sun and to die Didn't think much of it, but as he kind of came back into consciousness later in the afternoon, he wrote this. He said, a strange thing happened. His glistening black shell cracked all the way down his back, and out of it came a shapeless mass, quickly transformed into beautiful, brilliantly colored life. As they watched in fascination... There gradually unfolded iridescent wings from which the sunlight flashed a thousand colors. The wings spread wide as if in worship of the sun. The blue-green body took shape. Before my eyes had occurred a metamorphosis, the transformation of a hideous beetle into a gorgeous dragonfly, which started dipping and soaring over the water. But the body it had left behind still clung to my canoe. I had witnessed what seemed to me a miracle. Out of the mud had come a beautiful new life. And the thought came to me that if the Creator works such wonders with the lowliest of creatures, what may not be in store for the human spirit? To me, this meditation of uh, Cecil B. DeMille has the likeness of... uh, Uh, A childhood memory. And yet we're told that it was a meditation that he writes near the end of his life. As he not only thinks back on the meaning of his life, his past, but also that he looks forward to the future. And he begins to wonder, what's next for me? What will happen? And the wonder of this little enacted parable before his eyes fills his imagination with good things. Maybe this suggests to him the best is yet to come. A black tomb sits on the edge of Jerusalem, empty. True for you and me, this recollection is a long time ago. 2,000 years. But Easter this morning gives us a fresh opportunity to reconsider its meaning in our lives and, and to look Forward to the future differently because of this collective memory that history gives to us. We can reconsider our own future in light of Easter. You and I face these questions every day. What's next? What will tomorrow bring? Will I face it well? Can I live into the future with hope? Well, whatever, friends, you and I face this morning, Easter Sunday gives us an opportunity to take these questions amidst the challenges of our days, back in time. To take them way back in time to the first century, to a faraway place, to Jerusalem, and there with inflamed imaginations hold the challenging questions of our lives in the presence of that empty tomb. That's really what the pageantry and the imagery of Easter Sunday is all about. From the pastels to the peeps. It's about giving us the capacity to go back in time to think differently about our our present because of what we see in the past and to live boldly into the future. So what's next for you? I want you to think about what tomorrow might look like, and I want you to do so not only in this company but in the company of the likes of Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and John the Beloved who sit before this empty tomb with wonder, and perplexity, and even in some sense, profound worship. Our sermon text uh, this morning is in your bulletin. I would invite you to uh, look at page four there, and you'll see it's just one verse. It's from the book of Romans, which we've been studying as we've been listening to the hope that God has for us in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me, and let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully you're reading God's holy word from Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. The tomb is empty, and the tomb this morning is empty for you. This story is not some silly flannel graph story that's for those who are naive enough to believe it, but the historical accounts of Jesus Christ refer to a reality that is the greatest reality in the history of this creation, that God has literally broken the powers of death, and that resurrection power is available for you this morning. Paul says, if you confess with your lips. And this is a first, a second person singular pronoun that's rather direct. There's so many plural pronouns uh, in the New Testament addressing corporate audiences. But here, the address is singular. It's to a you. It's very personal. And Paul understands. Jesus was risen from the dead in A.D. thirty. In Jerusalem, he understands that he writes a community 1,500 miles away in Rome. They haven't seen Jesus risen from the dead. He writes to a community in 8057, 27 years later. A lot of time, almost as many years as Jesus lived his life has passed since he's come back from the dead. And yet the Apostle Paul says, if you, you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, dear friends is for us this morning. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And if you're like me, you say, ah, it's not for me. There's just something different about me. Walk into a room like this, and you see all these smart-looking people, well-dressed. You guys look beautiful this morning. It's amazing. And you know, you say, well... We, uh, I didn't this morning because I, I came to church so early, but so often, you know, I come to church and just have a fight in the family, you know, how hard it is to get everybody dressed and out into the car, into the church on, on time. And you're sitting here and you're going, This preacher's talking about somebody. He must be talking about all these beautiful people because they seem to have their lives all put together, but I know he's not talking about me. I know it's for religious people. I know it's for righteous people. I know it's for good people. But, you know, what he doesn't know is that I am struggling with a loveless marriage. That I've been wrestling with an impossible job search. That my sex life is absolutely out of control. That I'm estranged from the relationships that I know should be the most meaningful relationships in my life. I'm consumed with grief. And I've frankly given up on faith. You no, know, the resurrection of Jesus can't be for me. But Paul says it is. And I want to, if I can be maybe slightly disrespectful and bold this morning, I want to say to you, Before you make yourself judge, jury, and executioner in your spiritual life, let me say to you, that's not your call. That is not your decision. Paul says in this verse that you are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the one who gets to make the decision about you, about your future, about your spiritual life, and about your worth and your potential. That's what he says, Jesus is Lord, and among all the many implications of that, one of them is, you are not. And the one who is Lord is the one whom, Scripture tells us, walked among the least and the last. He is the one who gave his life in love. He didn't hang out with the righteous people of his day, with the religious people of his day. He hung out with people like you and me. He is the one who is Lord. He is the one who makes the decision about our lives. And he is the one, through his Spirit, who inspired the Apostle Paul to say, this is for you. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When Jesus comes back from the dead, who does he find? He finds himself come for none other than Peter, a deserter, who has denied Jesus three times. He comes for none other than Thomas, a doubter, who has said, I will not believe. He comes for none other than the likes of Paul, Saul, a murderer who has been hunting and persecuting Christians. Why would you not think that he would come for you, just as you are? He has. The tomb is empty, and it's empty for you. Look over the gunwale of that canoe with Cecil B. DeMille, and you'll look through the quiet waters of Maine's summer-like, and you'll see in the mud beneath actually hundreds, if not thousands, of these so-called beetles. They're not actually beetles, they're nymphs. These are the larvae of dragonfly. And there they cling, hopeless to the mud, wondering if they have any future, if what's next to them is anything better than a a kind of a sultry death attached to some rock somewhere. And yet every single one of them is destined for life. Every single one of them has a future as a beautiful dragonfly. Well, the beetles will resist this if you try to persuade them of it. They'll look up at the surface and they may see their kindred there shriveling or cracking or dying a slow death in the heat of the day. And they cling to the mud and yet every single one of them will soar. This resurrection truth is for you. As DeMille says, if the creator works such wonders with the lowliest of creatures, what may not be in store for the human spirit. The tomb is empty this morning. That's why we're here. The tomb is empty because God made you truly to live. If you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Saved from what? Well, from a life that. In which all we see is all there is. A life that's kind of submerged in the possibilities of all that the world offers us and nothing more. I don't know if you saw the story, and it's a tragic story, of Charles and Adrian Snelling, this couple in Pennsylvania. It's a murder-suicide, and they found them both. 81 years old. A lovely uh, couple, and yet... She contracted six years earlier Alzheimer's disease, and he had watched her wither away. And the irony is that just four months before Charles took his wife's life and then his own, he had submitted an essay to the New York Times in which he wrote about the meaning that they were finding in the midst of this uh, suffering. He wrote about his wife. He said, although she is a very, very sick puppy, she remains to this day a sweet, happy, loving, and generous person. He wrote about himself and the challenge it is to care for somebody who's dying of Alzheimer's. He says, it's not noble, it's not sacrificial, and it's not painful. It's just right in the scheme of things. After all, this lady rescued me from a fate worse than death and for a long, long time. We continue to make a life together, living together in the full sense of the word, going about our life hand in hand, with everyone lending a hand as though nothing was wrong at all. What a profound sense of hope this couple was living, that he could write this essay and submit it to the Times, and yet four months later, that hope proved elusive. And one commentary says, the fact is, we are all terrible at imagining how we will feel in the future We exaggerate how much the future will be like the present. And if our capacities for imagining the future are bad in normal times, they are horrible in moments of stress and suffering. See, those of us who have looked Alzheimer's in the face and seen its horror will be very sympathetic to the Snellings. And yet we need to know that no matter what we face, there is more than the world has to offer us. There is more at work in our lives, even the darkness of death itself. It presents to us life and will give us hope if we believe in our heart. Easter gives us a new set of eyes, a new way to see the circumstances of our lives. The world will tell you, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And this life is really just about getting as much as you can and watching your friends become fewer and your body aging and your health declining, and, and then it's over. But Easter says no. Easter gives us an eternal perspective. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not your bank account, not your mortgage, not your health, not your relationships. Jesus is Lord. See, if we look beneath the surface and we see these larvae there in the mud, we can recognize that we don't live like them under our circumstances. The good news of Easter is that we live above our circumstances. My wife, uh, her father died when she was 12 years old in a plane crash. And he believed in Jesus Christ. And they believed with him that at that day he stepped into eternity. Today is actually his birthday. And on that day, it was his spiritual birthday that he went to be with the Lord. And yet he worked for a man named Mr. Pease. And ironically, many years later, more recently, Mr. Pease's son, who's about the same age as my wife, went down and died in a plane crash. He was a pilot. He was flying his own plane, and the plane went down, and he died, and the physician said, for some seven minutes. But then he came back. And I tell you, this Mr. Pease Jr. has never lived the same. Because that day he didn't step into eternity, but that day he stepped into a new way of living because he had a, what we call a near death experience that was so powerful, He's so convinced that he was face to face with Jesus in those seven minutes that he could never live his life the same. He's now living his life with an ardor and a beauty and a passion that I have rarely seen. But we can begin to see it in our own lives if we but believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and that there is so much more at work in our lives. The risen Jesus Christ made himself known in Rome. In AD 49, Suetonius, a Roman historian, tells us that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. That's, that's a Roman attempt at Jesus' title, Christ. Well, that's eighty. That's 49. That's uh, 19 years after Jesus has risen from the dead. Crestus is instigating something in Rome. Tacitus, the Roman historian, records it in AD 64. Nero began to persecute a group named Christians. You'd think they were pushing toothpaste. For their leader, who was executed under Pontius Pilate, he records, and who founded, quote, a most mischievous superstition, which was thus checked for the moment, but again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. It's a Roman historian. (laughs) We're basically a cesspool, and uh, these Christians have taken advantage of it. He says there's a mischievous superstition that's running through the city of Rome. There's no superstition. There's no riot going on. They just can't understand the presence of the living Jesus Christ in the lives of women and men who believe that resurrection life belongs to them as well. So, friends, what's next for you? What do you face this Easter Monday? What challenges you? Of what are you afraid? What depresses you? What makes your heart heavy? In all of these things, there is for you an unaccountable resurrection hope. The theologian Jurgen Moltmann writes, Christian hope is the power of resurrection from life's failures and defeats. It's the power of life's rebirth out of the shadows of death. It's the power for the new beginning at the point where guilt has made life impossible. The Christian hope is all these things because it is spirit from the spirit of the resurrection of the betrayed, maltreated, and forsaken Christ. Through his divine raising from the dead, Christ's hopeless end became his true beginning. If we remember that, we shall not give ourselves up, but shall expect that in every end a new beginning lies hidden. Yet we shall only become capable of new beginnings if we are prepared to let go of the things that torment us and the things we lack. Friends, it's time to release the gunnel, to spread our wings before the risen sun and worship and live. Will you pray with me? Risen Lord Jesus Christ, we bow our heads now acknowledging that because the empty tomb, you are present here today. You are not a philosophy. You are not a creed. You are not a set of beliefs. You are a person, and you are here with us, and you will be with us for all of eternity. And that tomb is empty because you are prying loose the true life that you created us to live from the clutches of our fear. Lord, let us rise in your resurrection life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.